So we're in Ezekiel. Last week we finished 29 and 30, both of which were excoriating Egypt and Pharaoh. And we're going to continue doing that tonight. One of the things that I mentioned to you last time is these prophecies are dated. This prophecy is given in the 11th year of the third month, and that is from the first exile that Nebuchadnezzar took Daniel and all those folks. So that's the dating sequence. You'll remember last time, back in 29, that the prophecies given here in the text are not in chronological order. So back in 29, there's one given on the 26th year, which is 15 years later than this one tonight, even though it was earlier in the text. I've got no idea why. It's entirely possible that Ezekiel himself wrote it that way, or it's also possible that some editor who was compiling things thought, gee, it makes more sense this way and put it there. I have no idea. So anyway, we're still dealing with Egypt. Let's start, and then I'll stop very quickly. So 31. In the eleventh year, on the third month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude, Whom are you like in your greatness? Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon, with beautiful branches and forest shade, and of towering height, its top among the clouds. We're going to go on and describe this tree that is Assyria, but the other place we get very much the same imagery is in Daniel chapter 4. So in Daniel chapter 4, you remember Nebuchadnezzar has a couple of dreams. First dream is with the metal statue, and the second dream is where he dreams about a tree. And that's in Daniel 4, and pick it up in verse 9. And again, just like with the metal statue, his wise men couldn't interpret it. So he's called Daniel in. So Daniel 4, 9. O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. Several things going on here, obviously. I don't mean to do a thing on Daniel, but Daniel got promoted when he was the only guy that could tell Nebuchadnezzar his original dream and interpret it. So he became chief of the magicians. Belteshazzar is the name that was given to him by Nebuchadnezzar after he interpreted the dream. So once again, he's got a dream that's bothering him. So he calls first the Chaldeans and the astrologers, and they weren't able to do anything with it. So then he calls Daniel. So verse 10, the visions of my head as I lay on my bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its top reached to heaven. It was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. 
I saw in the visions in my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beast free from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots on the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with dew of heaven. Daniel will say, oh, king, may this be for your enemies. In other words, this is not a good dream. The thing I want to talk about is Assyria, who is being talked about in Ezekiel, has been gone for over 100 years. So what we're going to talk about is this tree that was Assyria, and that tree that was Assyria was before the tree that is Babylon. Because the tree that is Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, is the guy that's about to come down and sand everything off. So what's happening with Pharaoh, and the same thing happens with Nebuchadnezzar, is this idea of comparing a earthly ruler with a tree which provides shade and fruit and places to nest. Any of you all seen the movie Lords of Arabia? with Peter O'Toole. It's a good movie. So he's out there traping across Arabia, and he comes to this oasis where a group of Arabs is camped, and they have a chief. And one of the things that this chief says as he's bragging about himself is, I am a river to my people. The idea, obviously, is because of my leadership, my people prosper, they trust me, I am good for them, providing them not directly with sustenance, so I'm not running the farms for them, but because I am their king and protecting them and so forth, everybody is prospering and things are doing well. In a desert, having a river is obviously a big deal. So this idea of a ruler being compared to a tree or a river or something like that, and you remember last time, Pharaoh was in the Nile, and God jerked him out and the fish stuck to his scales. Again, the Nile is the source of life for Egypt. In fact, if you look at a map of North Africa, you have this very skinny green trace that goes from south to north, and it's not very wide at all, and that's where probably 80 or 90% of all the Egyptians lived in that little band of green especially so in biblical times. I don't know now. But the idea that this river is the thing that sustains them, and Pharaoh claims that he is the one who created this river. I am the one that is the source of sustenance and prosperity to my people. And in Pharaoh's case, I am a god. So those are the metaphors we're dealing with. And as I said before, Pharaoh is being compared to the king of Assyria, which is Shalmaneser, I believe. Whereas Nebuchadnezzar, who is getting the same kind of images in his dream, is the one who's alive. All of this is by way of showing him as being this massive, powerful king who is a shelter and a protection to his people, but he's gotten proud. And the idea of the tree going up to heaven 
the metaphor there is this guy has gotten too big for his britches and he's starting to think of himself as a god. In fact, I was listening to Ron Dart earlier this week and he had a really good comment, absolutely right. Governments, as they mature, tend to regard God as a rival. That's what happens in these ancient kingdoms and of course that's what's going on now as our government is pushing God out of the public square and our government is trying to take up the role of God for us in a welfare state. Our government is trying to be this great tree that stretches up to the heaven, that houses all the birds and the animals are underneath it and everybody is sustained by it. We don't call ourselves a tree, but you get the idea that what happens as a king gets too big for his britches he starts to regard God as a rival, and that's where we are right now. All right, so anyway, all that is by way of saying what's going on with this image. The question was, as we were going through this, all of these things that God would do when he says, then they shall know that I am the Lord, and he says that over and over and over again, and Mike's question was, how did they know it was Jehovah if they were pagans? And given that Babylon was going to be the one to take them out, as opposed to Israel taking them out, how would Babylon taking them out show them that he was Jehovah? That was sort of your question. And we speculated, and I don't know the answer to that to this day, that this section in Daniel, starting around chapter 4, where it switches from Hebrew to Aramaic, and is his testimony... He gives what I would call a very eloquent testimony of salvation. He doesn't ever mention Yeshua because Yeshua has never been born, but he says, I know that this is God. He is God of gods and he's the one. And it reads very much like a Christian testimony today with a sinner's prayer. I got too big for my britches. He cut me down to size, but he was merciful and revived me. So the question was, when Babylon goes and sands off Egypt, as they will, does Nebuchadnezzar then tell them God is who he is? Because as I say, Pharaoh would know who Jehovah is because he's right next door to Israel. So it is not the case that this is an unknown God, known in the area, especially since we are in the latter stages of Israel's existence in the land. They have been there for over a thousand years, and they've been a major player, especially under David and Solomon. So the idea that the Egyptians don't know who Jehovah is is not credible. They know that. What I don't know is when Nebuchadnezzar comes and clobbers them, whether he's going to say, Jehovah sent me. Just don't know the answer to that. So, having explained the metaphor and what's going on with this tree image, let's go ahead and read it. So, I'm in Ezekiel 31. In the eleventh year, the third month, the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude, Whom are you like in greatness? Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon, with beautiful branches and forest shade, and of towering height, 
its top among the clouds. And again, I mentioned to you the idea that its top among the clouds, think Tower of Babel, reaching up too high. Four, the waters nourished it, the deep made it grow tall, making its rivers flow around the place of its planting, sending forth its streams to all the trees of the field. So it towered high above all the trees of the fields. Its boughs grew large, its branches long, from abundant water in its shoots. By the way, you can think of abundant water in terms of blessing, especially in that part of the world. Remember, Assyria was used by God to take out the northern kingdom, just as Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon are going to be used by God to take out the southern kingdom. And as I've said several times in this series, the 70 years that are prophesied in Jeremiah, if you look up in secular history, what you discover is that the 70 years is the length of the time that Babylon exists. Babylon does not exist as a nation. Assyria is the dominant power in the region. Assyria gets sanded off. Babylon comes up. Last 70 years is destroyed by the Medes and the Persians. So the idea that God raised up Nebuchadnezzar and his empire, used them for a period of time to chasten Israel, and then, I'm done with you guys, time for the next empire. That also applies to Assyria. The idea here is this tree which reaches up to heaven and regards itself as godlike and so forth, God uses them for his purposes and then he puts them down like rabid dogs. Verse 6. All the birds of the heavens made their nest in its boughs. Under its branches all the beasts of the field gave birth to their young. And under its shadow lived all great nations. In other words, this is an empire. It's not just a nation. It was beautiful in its greatness, in the length of its branches, for its roots went down to abundant waters. The cedars in the garden of God could not rival it, nor the fir trees equal its boughs. Neither were the plane trees like its branches. No tree in the garden of God was equal in beauty. I made it beautiful in the mass of its branches, and all the trees of Eden envied it, that were in the garden of God. So what God is describing as this is something that I set up, and it was magnificent. I'm convinced that the idea of reaching up to the clouds is where things get shaky. Verse 10, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because it towered high and set its top among the clouds, and its heart was proud of its height, I will give it into the hand of a mighty one of the nations. He shall surely deal with it as its wickedness deserve. I have cast it out. So he's talking to Pharaoh by the prophet, and he's saying, all right, this is what I made. That's the poetic section. And now what we have is, well, Razaphrats. It's gotten too proud, needs to be put down. You can think something like Job, where you have this conversation going on in heaven that the earth is not privy to. Twelve, foreigners, the most ruthless of nations, have cut it down and left it. On the mountain and in all the valleys, its branches have fallen, and its boughs have been broken 
in all the ravines of the land, and all the peoples of the earth have gone away from its shadow and left it. On its fallen trunk dwell all the birds of the heavens, and in its branches are all the beasts of the field. All this is in order that no trees by the water may grow to towering height or set their tops among the clouds, and that no trees that drink water may reach up to them in height. For they are all given over to death, to the world below among the children of man, with those who go down to the pit. Clearly the metaphor here is, you got too proud, you got too big, you regarded God as a rival, God cut you back down to size and reminded you very forcefully that you are in fact mortal and you are no God. A couple chapters ago, remember we were talking about Pharaoh is gotten too big. He thinks he created the Nile. He thinks he's a God. And so we're talking in terms of Assyria. We're talking in terms of Nebuchadnezzar. But God's not done with Nebuchadnezzar. So what you'll see with Nebuchadnezzar is when the tree gets cut down, the stump remains. And for a time, it's got an iron and a bronze band around it, which means that that's the time when he was wandering around in the field eating grass like an ox, but there's still life. And once the time was up, that stump then sprouted again, and Nebuchadnezzar resumed his rulership because God still had stuff for him to do. That was not the case with Assyria. Notice that there's no stump here that's got shoots coming out of it or anything. It's gone. Assyria was the big dog in the Middle East before Babylon. It was a rival to Egypt. They did a number of battles against each other. So they would know Assyria. They would know the history of Assyria. They would know the power of Assyria. So when God says, oh, remember Assyria? I cut them down. They're gone. They're no longer there. You're next. That's why this is here. So verse 15. Thus says the Lord God, On the day the cedar went down to Sheol, I caused mourning. I closed the deep over it and restrained its rivers, and many of its waters were stopped. I clothed Lebanon in the gloom for it, and all the trees of the field fainted because of it. I made the nations quake at the sound of its fall when I cast down to Sheol with those who go down to the pit. And all the trees of Eden, the choice and best of Lebanon, all that drink water, were comforted in the world below. They went down to Sheol with it, to those who are slain by the sword, yes, those who are its arm, who lived under its shadow among the nations. The idea is the end comes to Assyria just like it does to everybody else. Think in terms of Tyre and in terms of Babylon in the end times. Remember when Babylon goes down, everybody mourns. It's a worldwide cataclysm. You got the merchant sitting off shore, looking at its burning and weeping. You get the same kind of images here. When Assyria goes down, it reverberates throughout the entire region. 18. Whom are you thus like in glory and in greatness among the trees of Eden? You shall be brought down with the trees of Eden to the world below. You shall lie among the uncircumcised with those who are slain by the sword. This is Pharaoh and all his multitude, declares the Lord. So in 
18, switching focus, we're now turning and talking to Pharaoh. When it says, whom are you thus like in glory? You, Pharaoh. I've just described the glory of Assyria, just described what I did to them, and who are you compared to them? And understand that you're going to the same place. Chapter 32. In the twelfth year, in the twelfth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him. So this is a year and nine months later. I got no idea why God keeps talking to Ezekiel about Egypt. God's God and I'm not, and that's what he did. A lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, You consider yourself a lion of the nations. But you are like a dragon in the seas. You burst forth in your rivers, trouble the waters with your feet, and foul their rivers. Anybody not know what the worm Ouroboros is? It's a symbol that was current then in the Mediterranean of a snake swallowing its own tail. I'm sure you've all seen it. There is also in Norse mythology the Midgard serpent which is the son of Loki and somebody in their mythology. And it is in the sea and it circles the earth. At the last battle, when the gods fight it out, it's going to be killed by Thor. And in that process, Thor himself will die. And that's Ragnarok. But the point is dragons, serpents in the sea, serpents circling things and swallowing their own tail. All of that is in mythology all over the world. So this image here of the dragon that's under the sea and when the dragon is upset it roils the sea and roils the waters making the waters polluted and murky. What we're talking about here is images that would have resonated with pagans reading this at the time. Now we've already talked of Pharaoh like a dragon. He was the dragon that was in the Nile. Now he's a dragon that's in the sea. Verse 3. Thus says the Lord God, I will throw my net over you with a host of many peoples, and they will haul you up in my dragnet. And I will cast you on the ground, and the open field I will fling you, and will cause all the birds of the heavens to settle on you. And I will gorge the beasts of the whole earth with you. I will strew your flesh upon the mountains and fill the valleys with your carcass. I will drench the land even to the mountains with your flowing blood, and the ravines will be full of you. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. Does that sound like revelation to anybody besides me? Where the stars are darkened and the sun is darkened and you have earthquakes, blood up to the withers of the horses. This is very much reminiscent to me of what Revelation is. Verse 8, All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. And again, you had the plague of darkness during the Exodus. You will have a plague of darkness in Revelation. And what we're talking about here is dealing with Egypt. You've got Egypt, Assyria, Nebuchadnezzar, all of whom are major empires that God eventually has to cut down to size. And the model is what happened to Egypt in the Exodus. 
for those of you who have been in Midrash, you recognize or realize that all of the plagues of Egypt, with a possible exception of frogs, show up again in Revelation. Different order, but they all show up again. So once God gets a theme going, he keeps using it over and over and over again. And the thing that is being said over and over and over again in both Ezekiel and Daniel is God regards human government as dangerous animals, as pretenders to divinity, as things that regard themselves as rivals to him. And he deals with them the same way every time. So that's what we're seeing here in Ezekiel, then over there in Daniel. And we'll see it again in Revelation. We saw it in Exodus. So the images are very, very similar. So verse 9. I will trouble the hearts of many peoples when I bring your destruction upon the nations into the countries that you have not known. I will make many peoples appalled at you and the hair of their kings shall bristle with horror because of you when I brandish my sword before them. They shall tremble every moment, every one for his own life on the day of your downfall. The image of Revelation, Babylon falling, Tyre falling, this idea that when God takes out one of these major empires, it reverberates throughout the entire earth. Verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, The sword of the king of Babylon shall come upon you. I will cause your multitude to fall by the swords of mighty ones, all of them most ruthless of nations. What he's saying is Babylon is going to be the instrument that I'm going to use to destroy you. And in fact, they were. Going back to the other question, why didn't this happen to Nebuchadnezzar? Because God had a job for Nebuchadnezzar. He was going to take out Israel, and then he was going to take out Babylon. And then after that, he's done with them, and they get replaced by the Medes and the Persians. So 12 again. I will cause your multitude to fall by the swords of mighty ones, all of them most ruthless of nations. They shall bring to ruin the pride of Egypt, and all its multitude shall perish. I will destroy all its beasts from beside many waters, and no foot of man shall trouble them any more, nor shall the hooves of beast trouble them. Then I will make their waters clear and cause their rivers to run like oil, declares the Lord God. What we are is back to the image of this serpent that is in the ocean. And as the serpent is upset and thrashes around, he makes the waters polluted. So what God here is saying is, I'm going to take out that dragon so that it can no more pollute the waters. This thing started with the fact that you are too big for your britches and you are fouling the rivers. So down to 14. Then I will make their waters clear and cause their rivers to run like oil, declares the Lord God. So once you're gone, this pollution, spiritual pollution, is going to be cleared up. Obviously, we are not talking about literal pollution. We're talking about spiritual pollution here. 15 again. When I make the land of Egypt desolate, and when the land is desolate of all that fills it, when I strike down all who dwell in it, then they will know that I am the Lord. This is a lamentation that shall be chanted. The daughters of the nation shall chant it over Egypt, 
and over all her multitude shall they chant it, declares the Lord God. So the idea here is when Egypt falls, all of the nations around will mourn, and of course the obvious reason for that is loss of economics, and perhaps loss of military allies, not at all clear which, but the idea that when Egypt goes, the surrounding nations that have in some measure depended upon her will mourn. 17. In the twelfth year, in the twelfth month, on the fifteenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, wail over the multitude of Egypt and send them down her and the daughters of majestic nations to the world below, to those who have gone down to the pit. And this is the refrain that is going on. Remember, Assyria was cut down and went down to the pit where they joined everybody else that had gone down to the pit. Now Egypt is going down to the pit. So verse 19, whom do you surpass in beauty? Go down and be laid to rest with the uncircumcised. And that's the second time this has been said. And the idea of you surpassing in beauty, you think Pharisee and the tax collector? I'm really hot stuff. I'm really beautiful. The stuff that happens to everybody else is not going to happen to me. I'm just too wonderful. And what God is saying here, who do you surpass in beauty? Go down and be laid to rest with the uncircumcised. There's nothing special about you. So verse 20. They shall fall amid those who are slain by the sword. Egypt is delivered to the sword. Drag her away and all her multitudes. The mighty chiefs shall speak of them with their helpers out of the midst of Sheol. They have come down. They lie still. The uncircumcised slain by the sword. This is what the people who are already in Sheol say when Egypt shows up. 22. Assyria is there and all her company. Its graves all around it, all of them slain, fallen by the sword, whose graves are set in the uttermost parts of the pit, and her company is all around her grave, all of them slain, fallen by the sword, who spread terror in the land of the living. These were very powerful empires, terrified everybody, but they wind up in the pit just like everybody else. Verse 24, Elam is there, and all her multitude around her grave, all of them slain, fallen by the sword, who went down uncircumcised into the world below, who spread their terror in the land of the living, and they bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. They have made her a bed among the slain with all her multitude, her graves all around it, all of them uncircumcised, slain by the sword, for terror of them was spread in the land of the living." and they bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. They are placed among the slain. Elam, by the way, is to the east, I believe, of Babylon, north and east. Not to be confused with Edom, who is slightly to the east of Israel. So Meshach Tubal is there, and all her multitude, her graves all around it, all of them uncircumcised, saying by the sword, for they spread their terror in the land of the living, and they do not lie with the mighty the fallen from among the uncircumcised who went down to Sheol with their weapons of war, whose swords were laid under their heads and whose iniquities were upon their bones. For the terror of the mighty men was in the land of the living. But as for you, you shall be broken and lie among the uncircumcised with those who are slain by the sword. A couple of things going on there. One, Meshach and Tubal are not nearly as heroic as some of the others. And this idea of 
going down to Sheol with their weapons. Most of you, of course, I'm sure know that archaeologically, when they find the graves of warriors, they are generally buried with their weapons and accoutrements. So these are images that would have been very familiar to everybody there. A hero, when he dies, is buried with his weapons. Verse 29. Edom is here, her kings and all her princes, who for all their might are laid with those who are killed by the sword. They lie with the uncircumcised, with those who go down to the pit. The princes of the north are here, all of them, and all the Sidonians, who have gone down in shame with the slain. For all the terror that they caused by their might, they lie uncircumcised with those who are slain by the sword and bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. You getting the vibe here? 31, when Pharaoh sees them, they're already down there. So Pharaoh is on his way down there. So he's going to be welcomed, quote unquote, by these other ones who have already gone before it. When Pharaoh sees them, he will be comforted for all his multitude. Pharaoh and all his army, slain by the sword, declares the Lord God. For I spread terror in the land of the living, and he shall be laid to rest among the uncircumcised with those who are slain by the sword. Pharaoh and all his multitude, declares the Lord God. Obviously, this is all aimed at Pharaoh. And all of this is by way of telling Pharaoh This is what's going to happen to you, and this is why. And to wrap up one more thing, Ezekiel is not talking to Egypt. He is not talking to Israel. He is in Babylon talking to the exiles. So he's making these prophecies and writing them down by way of telling the exiles why the things that are about to happen on Nebuchadnezzar's second trip are happening. And of course, He writes it down for us. In fact, I was listening to, again, Ron Dart. He's about the only radio I listen to anymore. And one of the things he said is, human nature has not changed. That's the reason the Bible is so valuable. It's because you can read about people who are just like us and they do the same dumb stuff we do. Human nature hasn't changed. God's standards have not changed. So when God explains something that's about to happen and why it's about to happen... If the conditions that are being described in the prophecy match the conditions where you are, God thinks of you pretty much the same way. And he does not need to send a fresh prophet. Just go read the book. And if you see your society in the book, look at what God thinks about them and take heed. And as I was saying earlier, one of the things that happens is When governments get too big, they begin to regard God as a rival. And when that happens, this sort of stuff starts kicking in because they are, in fact, not rivals to God. And when they begin to think that they are, God will adjust things.